Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got Darcy with me. Darcy, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing okay. How about you? A little nasally. Yeah, I can tell. <laughs> Not necessarily sounding the most healthy that I've ever sounded in my entire life, but, you know, whatevs. Yeah. We press on. <laughs> it's been a long week, and I'm really, um, I've been pushing myself hard, so. Yeah. Um, got some interesting stuff for you today. Okay. Um, first and foremost, woman in China sues coworker for hugging her so hard he broke three of her ribs. Holy cow. I mean, what happened there? So this woman is from a city in China's Hubei province, and she was reportedly talking with a coworker in May 2021 when a male colleague approached her and gave her a really tight hug. It allegedly left her screaming in pain. She said she experienced discomfort in her chest after the hug, but she only resorted to applying some oil to her skin after work as she thought the pain was temporary. I mean, who just puts oil on if you're in pain? <laughs> it seems wild. Well, I mean, I, Eastern medicine, I think, is pretty big over there. So, um, In any case, she put a little oil on and thought it was going to go away. And then she visited the hospital when her chest pain reportedly intensified. An x-ray revealed that she had three broken ribs and one left rib and two right ribs. Wow. So she was forced to pay for her own medical treatment and take leave from work, which resulted in a loss of income. So she claimed that she met up with this male colleague to negotiate some sort of compensation to pay for her medical bills, which right. seems like a fair thing to do, right? Yeah. Um, but they could not come to a settlement as he argued that his hug was cordial and she had no evidence that her injury was the result of his hug, which to his point, I mean, what if she just had a particularly, you know, she rode a bike and got in a biking accident or something outside of work. How do you prove that that hug indeed did create that rib damage right if if she were in a different incident after the hug there would probably be external injuries perhaps um but she could also what i considered was there's this thing called eggshell syndrome eggshell skull syndrome and it's mm -hmm. um it's a concept where whereby you take the victim as they come so it doesn't matter whether the person is overly sensitive or the person is normal and wouldn't be injured by just a tap. So there are people that are more fragile than other people, mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter whether they're more mm -hmm. fragile or not. You're equally responsible for the damage that you do to somebody with an eggshell skull as you would be for somebody who is normal. Yeah. But that is in America... <laughs> yeah, this lawsuit actually happened in China. And this woman filed a lawsuit to seek compensation for the money she lost due to her broken ribs. And the court stated there was no evidence to prove that the broken ribs that the broken ribs were caused by other physical activities. And the colleague was ordered to pay for the woman. So basically, <laughs> and it's interesting, we learned about this in law school. And it's considered a well established legal doctrine in common law used in some tort systems. It's just got a similar doctrine that applies to criminal law. The rule states that in a tort case, the unexpected the unexpected frailty of the injured person is not a valid defense to the seriousness of any injury caused to them. Um, which is interesting because what I was thinking when I heard this case initially was, well, what if this woman was just 
overly sensitive? What if she was very delicate and just a normal hug from a normal person caused her ribs to break when a normal person would have no reaction to this whatsoever? And whether that applied to this particular case and whether China even has a principle that's similar to that. But. Right. But it's not it's not a matter of the the force of the hug. It's a matter of the fact that there there was a hug like the hug is a preceding incident to the injury. You have to prove that that whatever this person did directly caused this injury. Like, so there's various principles that you have to follow in order to get compensation for an injury. So it's, I don't know how the Chinese court works, but clearly she had enough of these principles in place for Chinese law to rule in her favor. But I mm-hmm. thought it was interesting and kind of juxtaposing that against what would have happened had she filed that in the U.S. I mean, yeah, I don't know. Maybe she would have been laughed out of court. I don't think she would have ever gotten gone to court in here in the U.S. for something like this. Um, I don't, I mean, that's actually like really similar to my job. Like I probably would work that case. Interesting. Um, so, I mean, I don't find it different at all. I think that but considering that there's no evidence of additional injury subsequent to the rib injury and there's a witness to the rib injury. Yeah. But did that person witness her being hugged or did that person witness an injury? You know what I mean? I don't think it matters if the if you can if the if you can prove that the hug was the cause of the injury, then. Yeah, but how do you prove that the hug was the cause of the injury, that his hug was the cause of the injury? I mean, if if, if there's no subsequent action hugging <laughs> after that, this... that, that would have resulted in that injury, then I mean, that's what you're looking at. I don't know. I find that a little sketchy. The fact that she wants and grand. I mean, it's it's peculiar that that she broke three ribs from being hugged. Yeah, that's so, the first place. So what's what going on with her that she that that she was more susceptible to these fractures? But that's doesn't doesn't matter when if he hadn't hugged her, then she wouldn't have gotten the injury. Well, it just goes to show, don't hug your coworkers, people. I mean, I wouldn't hug my coworkers. Yeah, just anyway. don't touch people. But um. I- Obviously, there's a lot of facts behind this case that we don't have knowledge of because we don't have the court papers in front of us. We just have this article. So, I mean, maybe there was some sort of a she had winced and said, ow, that hurt. I don't know. I mean, maybe there is additional evidence. Well, the, well, you said the article said that she was screamed in pain. Yeah. Well, I guess that's causation hug, enough so. to to prove that. So it's interesting. It's an interesting case. <laughs> just don't hug your coworkers, people. Um. Next article. Here's another good one. A dad took photos of his naked toddler for the doctor and Google flagged him as a criminal. And this is an interesting case and one that, you know, I think is really, it's going to be really um, something that we're going to have to think more about now as these sorts of things begin to happen more frequently. But Mm-hmm. Mark noticed something amiss with his toddler. His son's penis looked swollen and was hurting him. Mark was a stay-at-home dad in San Francisco, and he grabbed his phone and took photos to document the problem so he could track its progression. It was Friday mm-hmm. night in February 2021, right in the middle of the pandemic, um, so you don't really have a lot of in-person at that point. Mm-hmm. 
His wife called an advice nurse at their healthcare provider to schedule an emergency consultation for the next morning. They had to do this by video because it was Saturday and it was in the middle of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. The nurse told them to send the photos so the doctors could review them in advance. Mark's wife didn't think anything of it and she grabbed his phone and texted the photos from to her phone so she could upload them to the healthcare provider's messaging system. So um, these pictures helped to better display, better display the swelling and his neither Mark or his wife gave any thought mm-hmm. to the tech giants that made this quick capture and exchange of digital data possible or what those giants might think of these images. With help from the photos, the doctor diagnosed the issue and prescribed antibiotics, which quickly cleared it up. But the episode left Mark with a much larger problem, one that would cost him more than a decade of contacts, emails, and photos, and make him the target of a police investigation. Mark, who asked to be identified only by his first name for fear of potential uh, harm, had been caught in an algorithm that was designed to snare people exchanging child Mm -hmm. sex abuse material. Because technology companies routinely capture data like this, they have been pressured to act as sentinels, examining what passes through their servers to detect and prevent Mm -hmm. criminal behavior. Child advocates say that company cooperation is essential to combat the rampant online spread of sexual abuse imagery. But it can entail peering into private archives like digital photo albums, and intrusion users may not expect that this has cast innocent behavior in a sinister light in at least two cases that the New York Times unearthed recently. John Callis, a technologist in the Electronic Frontier Foundation, a digital civil liberties organization, called the cases canaries in this particular coal mine. There could be tens, hundreds, and thousands of more, more of these, he said. Given the toxic nature of the accusations, Callis speculated that most people wrongfully flagged would not publicize what had happened. I knew that these companies were watching and that privacy is not what we would hope it to be, Mark said, but I have done nothing wrong. Police agreed, but Google did not. After setting up a Gmail account in the mid-aughts, Mark, who is in his 40s now, came to rely heavily on Google. He synced his appointments with his wife on Google Calendar. His Android smartphone camera backed up his photos and videos to the Google Cloud. He even had a phone plan with Google Fi or Fee. Two days after taking the photos of his son, Mark's phone was made a blooping notification noise. His account had been disabled because of harmful content that was a severe violation of Google's policies and might be illegal. A Learn More link led to a list of possible reasons, including child sexual abuse and exploitation. Mark was confused at first, but then remembered his son's infection and thought, oh God, Google probably thinks this was child porn. Mm-hmm. In an unusual twist, Mark had worked as a software engineer at a large technology company for making, excuse me, for making an automated tool for taking down video content flagged by users as problematic. So he'd helped mm-hmm. actually create some of the content that was now flagging him. Yeah. So he filled out a form requesting a review of Google's decision, explaining his son's infection. At the same time, he discovered the domino effect of Google's rejection. Not only did he lose his emails, contact information for friends and and former colleagues, and documentation of his son's first years of life, his Google Fee account was also shut down, meaning he had to get a new phone number with another carrier. 
Without access to his old phone number and email address, he couldn't get the security codes he needed to sign into other internet accounts, locking him out of much of his digital life. In a statement, Google said, child sexual abuse material is abhorrent and we're committed to preventing the spread of it on our platforms. A few days after Mark filed the appeal, Google responded that it would not reinstate his account with no further explanation. Mark didn't know about Google's review team had also flagged a video he made and the San Francisco Police Department had already started to investigate him. So like this is like put this chain reaction in place immediately, Mm -hmm. like making him out to be some kind of sexual predator. The day after Mark's trouble started, the same scenario played out in Texas. A toddler in Houston had an infection on his intimate parts at the pediatrician's request This particular man, who asked to be identified only by his first name, used an Android phone to take photos, which were backed up automatically to Google Photos. He then sent them to his wife via Google's chat service. This guy was in the middle of buying a house and signing digital documents when his Gmail account was disabled. Mm -hmm. He asked his mortgage broker to switch his email address, which made the broker suspicious until the real estate agent vouched for him. It was a complete headache, this man said. Images of children being exploited or sexually abused are flagged by technology giants millions of times each year for good reason, right? Mm -hmm. In 2021, Google alone filed more than 600,000 reports of child abuse material and disabled accounts of more than 270,000 users as a result. Mark and this other gentleman's experiences were just drops in this bucket. And granted, they were probably doing some good, right? Mm Mm-hmm. The tech industry's first tool to seriously disrupt the vast online exchange of so-called child pornography was PhotoDNA, a database of known images of abuse converted into unique digital codes or hashes. They could be used to quickly comb through large numbers of images to detect a match, even if a photo has been altered in small ways, which they will do in order to try to get past those filters. But Microsoft released PhotoDNA in 2009. Facebook and other tech companies used it to root out users circulating illegal and harmful imagery. It's a pretty good tool. Mark and this other gentleman's photos were automatically uploaded from their phones to Google servers. This, the technology then flagged them. This is a nightmare that we're all concerned about, they said. They're going to scan my family album and I'm going to get into trouble. A human content moderator for Google would have reviewed the photos after they were flagged by this artificial intelligence to confirm they met federal definitions of child sexual abuse material. When Google makes like a discovery such as this, it locks the user's account automatically, right? And searches for other exploitative material as required by federal law, then it's required to report this to this tip line. So evidently this technology and the flagging of accounts has resulted in over 4,260 potential new child victims. But the problem is Mark and this other guy were counted among the abusers when no crime actually happened here. But in December of last year, Mark got a manila envelope in the mail from the San Francisco Police Department. It contained a letter informing him that he had been investigated, as well as copies of the search warrants served on Google and his internet service provider. Can you imagine? And he's getting it after the fact. An investigator whose contact information was provided had asked for everything in Mark's Google account, his internet searches, his location history, his messages, and any document, photo, or video he'd stored for the company, with the company. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine that? I mean, how invasive would that feel? They're looking through every single picture, video, anything that you've ever loaded on Google. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Evidently, this search related to child exploitative videos had taken place in February within a week of his taking the photos of his son. When he called the investigator, they said the case was closed and they tried to get in touch with Mark, but his phone number and email address hadn't worked. That's the one that Google shut down. Right. So they determined the incident did not meet the elements of a crime and that no crime occurred. But he's just finding this out via this envelope months and months later. Now that he has this information from the police department, he goes back to Google and says, tell me, you know, can I get my accounts back? Mark appealed his case to Google again, provided the police report, but to no avail. They didn't give it back to him. Hmm. So after getting a notice two months ago that his account was permanently deleted, Mark spoke with a lawyer about suing Google and how much it might cost. It was about $7,000 to file a case against them. Yeah. And it's Google. So like they can extend it as long as they want. But essentially what I want to say is, do we think that the squeeze is worth the juice in a case like this? Yes. I mean, it just seems like that's a lot that he had to go through and they still won't get him an account. And they still won't give him his account back. Yeah, it's a lot that he had to go through, but he also didn't go to prison. So it... Yeah, but he didn't do anything wrong. No, he didn't do any... He Actually, he did do something wrong. He sent... that. What he did wrong was sent the pictures to his wife or his wife sent the pictures to herself over the phone. That's what flagged it. It wasn't that he took the pictures. It was that they backed up It would, and it was that he sent the data to another phone. He'd have to send it to his doctor. So it would have been flagged anyway. So what... Yes, but typically what ha- with those situations, you have a patient portal where you can upload files like that, and that distinguishes them as different than just texting somebody a picture. Well, they need to make that more clear to people then, because I had no idea. None. And if I had a child, I probably would have done the, exactly the same thing. It's Well, it's not, that the, it's not the fact that he took the picture because he wanted to... If he just took the picture and then uploaded it to a patient portal or showed the doctor... This wouldn't happen. I would have done the exact same thing. I would have never known. And that's fine. I mean, yeah, that's fine. But in the long run, he didn't go to prison because he didn't commit a crime. But he did do something wrong in the fact that he 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 took this picture and he shared that data over their server. And they are legally required to mine that data for child sexual abuse material. I have no problem with this. Okay. Well. I mean, I have no problem with that. I mean, I don't understand. I don't. It at some point, you there's going to be compromises in privacy, and I, that's understandable. Yeah. But the problem, the problem that I have issues with is the fact that Google won't give him his account information back. They have the. I mean, an investigation has been concluded. They've. He's not been charged with a crime. He's been found. This is an innocent, um, mistaken incident. Um, so they should give him his account information back. He should get access to that again. That's what I'm saying. I wasn't saying I disagree with them shutting the account down, but they should give it back to him after he right. shows them the, yeah, I, that, the that's investigation. What I'm saying. Like, they should give it back to him. Yeah. So right. I think we agree. But I don't have any problem with the, the, with the initial steps that they took without him knowing about it. But I think that, you know, they need to make it more clear that this is the case so that parents know so they don't fall into that trap. I don't know. I think right. if he's a if he's a software engineer who helped develop this kind of, um, then he should know. But I don't think the average parent would know. Think of, then that's something that he should think about. And that, that's what the article is saying as well. That there are countless parents out there that are stuck in this loop because they don't know. So let's make it more clear. Let's let people know so that they don't do that. So that they don't get innocently caught. Right. Yeah, but I mean, in the long run. What really 
is the damage to him? He lost all of his stuff. Okay. I mean, it could cost him business. It could cost him business relationships. The other guy almost lost his house. But he didn't. I don't know. I think that I'm not advocating on behalf of getting rid of the the restrictions that are in place. I'm just saying, let's make people more knowledgeable so they understand, you know, what should be done and what shouldn't be done. I mean, I, th- I think the appeals process needs review. They need an actual person looking over those cases for appeal. Um, it That's kind of where I am, but I don't, I yeah. mean, <laughs> that's, okay, I think that's kind of all that I can this one with. as far as we're going to beat it. Uh, let's talk about the main case for the day. I'm going to talk about the New Orleans, the Axe Man of New Orleans. All right. We're sticking with the axe theme, the axe murder theme. This ha- case happened between 1918 and 1919. So I just want to really quickly talk about what was going on during that period so people can understand a little bit. Mm-hmm. And this is like the end of World War One. Yeah. Right. Which went from 1914 to 1918. So anytime you've got a world war going on, you've got economic upheaval, you've got sort of insecurity, you've usually got um, a cash deficit. Usually there's a little bit of a recession, food, uh, raw materials, clothing, things like that are are somewhat hard to get. You've got rationing. You've got all kinds of other things. Usually there's a depression. There's insecurity until things get rolling again. Mm -hmm. So in this particular time in history, some of the events that were going on that were critical are... Daylight savings went into effect in the U.S. for the first time. Hmm. General Motors acquires the Chevrolet Motor Company in Delaware. Democratic Republic of Georgia is established. Yeah, I mean, this is also the time of the Russian Civil War. So everything in the Soviet, the the beginning of the Soviet Union is... Oh, Europe was a hot mess during this time period. Yeah, it's happening. Um, The Balkans were crazy. You've got the Mexican Revolution. Like, there's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, the German Empire falling apart. I mean, yeah, there's a lot going on in 1918. Oh, the great train wreck of 1918 happened in Nashville, Tennessee. This was when an outbound train collided with an outbound express train, killing 101 Mm. and injuring 171 people, making it the deadliest train wreck accident in U.S. history. Wow. So that was bad news bears. Women enlist in the United States Marine Corps for the first time. Ofa Mae Johnson was the first woman to enlist. That was big. So women could enlist in the Marine Corps where they couldn't vote yet. Oh, the flu pandemic happened that year, 1918, besides the Axemen of New Orleans. Mm -hmm. A total solar eclipse happened in June of that year. A second wave of the deadly Spanish flu started in France and in the U.S. in August of that year. So the other, I think the other one started, when did the Spanish flu start? That started in 1917. In 1919? Oh, yeah, it did. Yeah. Earliest documented case was March 1918 in Kansas. Yeah, the pandemic broke out near the end of World War One. November of that year, World War One ended, obviously. The Association Against the Prohibition Amendment is founded to oppose prohibition in the U.S. Anyway, there's a lot of instability in this country during that time period. You have the Spanish flu taking over. You've got people that are scared. You've got people that are worried about economics. You've got you know, the end of the war, a lot of people died in that war. So like, you've got tremendous instability in the world in general. 
So there was a march on Washington of World War One veterans around that time too, because they were trying to get um, veterans pensions. Like that was the first time I think they established the Veterans Affairs after World War One. Oh yeah, and the types of injuries that we experienced during World War One were just catastrophic yeah. and tremendous. And we really didn't. And there were a lot of like missing limbs and and things of that nature. There were a lot of gas attacks and things yeah. like that as well. So it was very troubling for veterans because a lot of them that lost limbs, I mean, what are you going to do when you get back? Because most right. of the jobs are manual labor type stuff. So it was very interesting time in history. And you've got that. The axman of New Orleans pops up. Yeah. So Joseph Maggio or Maggio, an Italian grocer and his wife, Catherine, it's May 23rd, 1918. They're sleeping in their home on the corner of Upper Line and Magnolia Streets. And this is in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. They had a bar room and a grocery and evidently somebody broke into their home and cut their throats with a straight razor. After that, he bashed their heads in with an ax. Weirdly enough, the husband, Joseph, survives, but dies minutes after being discovered by his two brothers. Whoa. So the police go in there and they find the bloody clothes of the murderer. So evidently this guy had changed into a clean set of clothes before he took off. Mm -hmm. So the police then search the bar room slash grocery and they did this after the bodies were removed. And later the bloody razor is located on the lawn of the neighbor's house. So almost immediately the police rule out robbery Mm -hmm. because all the money and valuables were, nothing was stolen. Um, The razor used to kill this couple initially. And I think that, you know, the, the ax injuries, I think probably hid the razor to a certain degree, but evidently that razor that was used to kill them initial, the initial, you know, slice their necks was found to belong to the brother of the man who was killed. They also found out that the razor was removed from the shop two days prior to the murder. So then this makes the brother, Andrew, right, the prime suspect. Because this is his razor. And he was ultimately released by the police. Okay. Um, when they find out that there's nothing that they can, they can't pin this crime on him. Um, and there was also an unknown man who was supposedly seen lurking near the residence prior There's to There's always him. somebody so lurking. Presumably, <laughs> right, presumably Andrew has this alibi. Louis Bessemer and his mistress Harriet Lowe were attacked June 27th, 1918. Mm-hmm. It was the early hours of the morning, and this happened in the back of his grocery store. And I feel like back then, groceries were like, having like a mom and pop grocery store connected to your house was very common. Yeah. Well, like having a shop connected to your, to your house was like living behind where you worked was like really common. And it wasn't like, I don't, if if I'm understanding correctly, it wasn't like they had like meats and like eggs and dairy. It was like dry goods stores. Yeah. Right. Like with like various canned goods maybe and, and some flour and not large at all, maybe yeah. like 50 items. It wasn't yeah. like, you know, you not didn't have fresh produce and it fresh It wasn't meat. like a one-stop shop like it is yeah. like we have now. And maybe like cigarettes and gum and candy yeah. for kids and stuff like that. Little things. 
But in any case, these guys also had a little grocery shop and Lewis was struck with a hatchet in the head and this fractured his skull. And then his mistress was found unconscious and she'd also been hit with the ax over her left ear. They were discovered early um, in the morning when the driver of a bakery wagon who came to deliver found them Mm. in a puddle of their own blood, both bleeding out of their heads. So this axe belonged to Lewis. So this kind of follows that pattern Mm -hmm. that they always find that the weapon belonged to the, whoever owned the home that they attacked. And it was found in the bathroom Hmm. of this home. So I do not believe this man died because he later told the police he'd been sleeping when he was bashed with the hatchet. Jeez. Almost immediately, the police find a suspect. They find this Louis Obukon. He was a 41-year-old black man who'd been employed in the store just weeks before the attacks. So, of course, they're going to grab this guy. Mm -hmm. It's New Orleans, and they can easily pin this on him. Right. But no evidence existed that showed he was guilty. So the police had arrested him nonetheless. And he also had given kind of conflicting accounts of his whereabouts um, at the time of the attack. And then Lowe stated that that's the mistress stated. She remembered she'd been attacked by a mixed, like a light skinned black man. Mm -hmm. Um, But her statements were discounted by police due to her disillusioned state. Obviously she'd been hit in the head with an ax. Right. No money or valuables were removed from this case either. And then the police ultimately released the Obicon guy because they couldn't gather sufficient evidence to hold him accountable for this crime. Okay. And then media attention turns to Lewis because of a series of letters written in German, Russian, and Yiddish that were discovered in a trunk in his home. They think he was possibly a German spy. And again, that was like a huge, huge thing back then, like being a spy and like everybody suspecting Anyone who was German was definitely highly suspect or anyone that might be potentially considered to have been, you know, come from a German background. Yeah. I mean, immigration, immigrants in general, like it was, they were like, they, people were suspicious of immigrants in general. And then especially in the fallout of World War One, German immigrants. I mean, it was, yeah, it was a whole, <laughs> things haven't changed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, um, The mistress in the meantime is kind of going in and out of consciousness. And then she comes to and tells them that she thinks that her boyfriend is in fact a spy. And then he gets arrested. Um, But two days later, he's released because they determined that they didn't do acceptable police work. Okay. Then he's arrested again after uh, the girlfriend who's laying, who's pretty much dying after this failed surgery said it was he who attacked her more than a month with this ago with his hatchet. Okay. So basically she's in and out of consciousness. She tells him he's a spy. Then she's like, wait, I don't know. Wait, he's the one that attacked me. I don't know. So he gets charged with the murder and serves nine months in prison before he's acquitted after a 10 minute jury deliberation. So they're like, okay, wow. he's good. So evidently she died August 5th, 1918. Doctors performed some kind of a surgery on her to repair her paralyzed face and then she ended up dying. Okay. And I think obviously back then they weren't so great at complex surgical maneuvers. I mean, yeah, they were just barely sanitizing before surgery at this point. Pretty much. So it's not surprising that she ended up passing away. Yeah. But then there's Anna Schneider. And then she was attacked August 5th, 1918. 
This poor woman was eight months pregnant at the Mm. time and about 28 years old. She wakes up to find this dark figure standing over her and he bashes her in the face repeatedly. Jeez. Cutting her scalp open and covering her in blood. Mm -hmm. And then her husband finds her when he returns late from work. She, luckily, doesn't remember anything the attack and gave birth to a healthy baby girl a couple days after she was attacked. Wow. Okay. Nothing was stolen from their home. The windows and doors of the apartment were not forced open, and authorities came to the conclusion that she was most likely attacked with a lamp that had been on a nearby table. Hmm. As well as the axe, of course. Um, Police thought that it was possibly James Gleason, and this man was arrested shortly after Schneider was found, but was released, again, just like the rest of them, due to a lack of evidence. Mm -hmm. And he originally ran from the authorities, which is why they snatched him up. But um, they started to speculate at that point that this was related to the other attacks, right. Bessemer and Maggio. The next victim, Joseph Romano. This was an elderly guy who was living with his two nieces, Pauline and Mary. This attack happened August 10th, 1918. These two young women awoke to the sound of commotion in the next room. This is where their uncle stayed. They go into the room and they find that their uncle had a serious injury to his head with two open cuts. You imagine Mm. how horrifying that would be to walk in and see somebody who'd been attacked by an axe. Mm -mm. They caught this guy, I think, kind of in the act as he was fleeing when they got there. Okay. They were able to see that he was dark skinned and heavy set. He wore a dark suit and a slouched hat. So this uncle, Joseph Romano, was seriously injured, but was able to walk to the ambulance, mm-hmm. which seems bonkers to me. But he died two days later due to the severe trauma that he experienced with the head right. injury. Just like the rest of them, no items were stolen. Hmm. They found the bloody axe in the backyard. And they also found that there was a panel on the back door that had been chiseled away. This created kind of chaos in the city because I think after that, then they were like, okay, there's, there's obviously a serial killer. Yeah. This is an axeman who's out there randomly attacking people and we all need to be afraid. Yeah. Police start releasing reports by then and people say that they're seeing some sort of an axeman lurking in New Orleans neighborhoods and um, that he is using axes from their own backyards So clearly people are like, hey, we need to maybe put our axes away. Yeah. But the police speculate that this murderer is very likely a normal law-abiding citizen who was often overcome, who was overcome by an overwhelming desire to kill. Sort of a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So this is like some early criminal profiling. Yeah. Right. I I mean, law-abiding citizen seems like you're just kind of reaching. Like, that's not really... They're trying. How these guys work. <laughs> They're trying. The next victim, Charles Cortamiglia. This was an Italian immigrant with his wife, Rosie, and they had a little daughter named Mary. And they were attacked on the night of March 10th, 1919. Neighbors heard screams coming from their house and came across the street to investigate. When they got there, they found Charles, his wife, and their daughter all attacked. Rosie, the wife, stood in the doorway with a serious head wound, and she was holding their daughter, who was deceased. 
And the husband, Charles, was laying on the floor, bleeding very badly. They rushed this couple to the hospital, and they have found that they both had severe skull fractures. I cannot believe these people are surviving through axe attacks to the head. Like the rest of them, no uh, items were stolen from the house. And they also had, again, a small kind of little panel on the back door that had kind of been chiseled away. Okay. And they find the bloody axe on the back porch that was their axe. The husband was released two days after the attack, but his wife stayed in the hospital. Um, When she gained full consciousness, the wife made claims that she knew who the killer was. And she said that it was another man and his 18-year-old son who were responsible. The, The man was 69 years old. And found to be in too poor of health to have committed these crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they said that the other man that she accused was weighed over 200 pounds and would have been too large to fit through the panel in the back door. Okay. So he had kind of broken away this space in the back door and shoved whoever this axe murderer was and, and kind of crawled in almost like a doggy door kind of a thing. So they, they determined that this big fat guy that she accused could not have possibly fit through that panel in the door. Because right. obviously the door wasn't, you know, unlocked or broken into. They just had the panel missing from the back yeah. door. Nonetheless, the police arrested these two guys that she accused and they would later be found guilty. The one gentleman that the wife accused was sentenced to hang and the other one was sentenced to life in prison. This couple got divorced after the trial and Almost a year after that, she announced she'd falsely accused the two out of jealousy and spite. Whoa. And they were released from jail Whoa. not long after. Which, can you... Ugh, I can't. I just can't imagine. Next, Steve Boca. He was attacked August 10th, 1919, while he slept. He awoke during the night to find a dark figure looming over his bed, which is literally my worst nightmare. Yeah. When he regained consciousness, which, again, I don't know how these people are surviving this stuff, he gets out of bed and runs to investigate the intrusion and finds that his head has been cracked open. I mean, wow. The neighbor finds him when he fell, lost consciousness, and obviously they take him to the hospital. And they see that, once again, there's like this, you know, panel chipped out of the back door of the house. This guy recovered from his injuries, but couldn't recall anything that happened to him. And then you have Sarah Lauman. She was attacked September 3rd, 1919. Neighbors came to check on her. She lived alone and found that someone had broken into her house and they found her lying unconscious. She was 19 years old. She had suffered from severe head injuries and was missing several teeth. Mm. Wow. Right. From an, She's lucky she, that was all she was missing. Evidently, this time, the intruder had entered through an open window and attacked her with a blunt object, but they found the bloody axe on the front lawn of the building. Okay. She recovered, but didn't recall anything that happened. Yeah. Which, obviously, you have severe head trauma. Sometimes you yeah. lose memory with that, too, right? The final victim was attacked October 27th, 1919. His wife woke up when she heard a noise, and there was a large axe-wielding man... Mm-hmm. taking off as she finds as she comes upon him right she finds her husband has been struck in the head and covered in his own blood there's blood spatter all over the room despite the fact that she kind of caught this guy in the act she couldn't describe any characteristics of him okay and he 
um, left before they could really figure out a lot of the details on that one as well. Okay. Um, what's interesting about this case is the victims were usually attacked with an axe, which obviously, because this fits in with our axe okay. murderer sort of a thing. And he didn't kill mm-hmm. all the victims, right? In most of these cases, a panel had been taken from the back door with a chisel. Right. And the panel was usually left on the floor near the door. Several of these residents were attacked with a straight razor. The crimes were not motivated by robbery. And the perpetrator usually didn't take items from the victims' homes. So this is these all connect in this way. What's interesting as well is the majority of the victims were Italian immigrants mm-hmm. or Italian-Americans. And how is that significant during that time period? Well, I mean, it's the end of World War One. The uh, Italy still has a king, but like Mussolini is going to come to power here in a couple years. Um, so it's, I mean, it's becoming a pretty fascist area. But you definitely have it. Yeah. Anti-immigrant sentiment still. Right. I mean, that's what I was getting at. Sorry, I should have been more clear. Um, but many people believe that these crimes were eth- ethnically motivated, which mm-hmm. obviously if they're all Italian Americans, media really sensationalized this one. They p- splashed it all over the newspapers. Axeman yeah. in New Orleans, like made it into a big thing. Some people thought mafia was involved. Mm-hmm. Some people suggested that the killings might be related to sex, which I don't really understand how that could be the case when a good portion of the victims were men and there was no rape involved. I mean, I think it's just one of those, like, puritanical things. Like, you hear that about New Orleans all the time. Like, it's the city of sin and, like, yeah. this, that, and the other. So anything they can blame on, like, sin is yeah. well, going to sell in, in New Orleans. Too, that they um, sort of hypothesize that this man only killed the men or only attacked the men because he they, they were there to obstruct his attempts to kill the women or do something to the women. But... Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily know that there's a whole lot of evidence to prove that. Right. Um, There's also a theory floating around out there that this was somehow promoted or somehow related to promoting jazz music. Yep. And again, that's my favorite theory. I mean, anyway, and then he, he would spare the lives of those who play jazz in their homes was like one of, which was nonsense. Right. Like that was put in the paper as like, wasn't it like they didn't they say it was communication from the killer or something? Yeah, there's a letter. I'm going to read that in just a second. Oh, okay. Um, he's never been caught or identified, and the crime spree stopped as mysteriously as it started. That's what they say. Possible identifications of varying people have been proposed, but nothing has ever been proven. What's interesting is this letter came out March 13th, 1919. I don't know why I have such a hard time saying 1919. <laughs> and this letter is supposed to be from the Axe Man. And they published it in all these newspapers. And he said he would kill again in 15 minutes past at 15 minutes past midnight on the night of March 19th, but would spare the occupants of any place where jazz music was playing. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, your theory with the jazz music. Mm-hmm. Supposedly that night in New Orleans, all the dance halls were filled to capacity and any professional and amateur bands played jazz at parties at hundreds of houses around town. And there were no murders that night. But this is the letter. It says, Hell, March 13th, 1919. And it's written to esteemed mortal. They have never caught me and they never will. They have never seen me for I am invisible, even as the ether sounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell 
I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the axe man. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know who they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe be smeared with blood and brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way they have conducted their investigation in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to not only amuse me, but his satanic majesty, Francis Joseph, etc., but tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover who I am, for it were better that they were never born to incur the wrath of the axeman. I don't think there's any need of any such warning, for I feel sure the police will always dodge me as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orleanians think of me as a most horrible monster, which I am, but I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished, I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I could slay thousands of you best citizens, for I am in close relationship with the angel of death. Now, to be exact, at 12.15 earthly time on next Tuesday night, I am going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I am going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared and whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well then, so much better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is that some of you people who do not jazz it out on that specific Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus, it is about time I leave you earthly home. I will cease my discourse, hoping that thou wilt publish this, that it may go well with thee. I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that ever existed, either in fact or realm of fantasy. Signed, the Axeman. <laughs> How wild is that? Like, that's definitely just like a music promoter in the city that just... I don't for one minute believe that that is actually written by the murderer. Do you? Yeah, no. <laughs> That's that's definitely a music promoter in the city that just, like, wants to... I mean, if it weren't so grisly and so tragic that people were killed by this, that would be one heck of a, a good joke, right? Obviously, writers and true crime buffs have speculated much yeah. through the years as to who this could potentially be. But ultimately, none of the, the people that they think it would be were proven, but right. to this day it remains unsolved. And it's weird that there are so many of these quote unquote axe murder type cases that are unsolved. Yeah. And, and I kind of mentioned this in the Velisca axe murder case um, episode. If we, you can delete this if we don't end up running that one. Um, but there were some axe murders in Birmingham that took place after the axe murders in New Orleans stopped. And I actually have a book about it. I haven't, I haven't read it. Um, if, completely yet but there are some people that think that those are related because i mean birmingham is just five hour drive from new orleans it's not very far at all um and there's i mean there's a very popular train route it's still a popular train route today people take the train to new orleans all the time from birmingham so yeah you know might be i also don't believe for one minute that this person stopped killing i think they just went to a different location what about you yeah for sure 
I mean, I find it hard to believe that a serial killer would just stop anyway. It's in their blood. Well, we know that they don't, right? I mean, like, the, we know, we already know, like, the history that hindsight has told us that they don't. Um, but it's interesting, like, the letter is very interesting. Like, it was definitely written by a New Orleans local because it plays into all of the things that, like, New Orleans, New Orleans um, citizens would buy into. Like, yeah. the spiritual stuff, the demons, like, hell, all that stuff. Like, that's huge. It plays huge in New Orleans. So, like, and then, of course, the jazz music. Like, that's just somebody that wanted to promote jazz music in the city or something. Yeah. Like oh, that. yeah. But, I mean, that person was obviously educated who wrote that letter. It's not right. written by a common person, an average person without education and so forth. So, right. I mean, it could, it very well could have been written by the actual newspaper editor, like, for all we know. Well, I mean, and it did say that they wanted to sensationalize the case and that it was mm-hmm. constantly splashed all over the newspapers. And it was, I mean, they didn't have television. They didn't have right. radio back then. So that's all they had was the newspaper stories and books. So, yeah. like, I think that they there was no kind of journalistic integrity that they made no. stuff up and that they sensationalized things to a great degree and this gave them the perfect opportunity to do that there's absolutely nothing to stop somebody from writing a letter like this and claiming to be anybody they want right. to be at that point in time yep so interesting case um anything else you want to add before we wrap it up uh nope so if you have any questions comments or suggestions you can shoot us an email we're at the bfd podcast at gmail.com you can check out our show notes they have all of the articles that we've referenced in this particular episode, as well as our email and all of our promo codes and all that kind of good stuff. Social media, Darcy? Yeah, we are at the BFD podcast on Instagram. So we'll post some good pics of, if nothing else, old timey New Orleans, because I love New Orleans. Yeah, it's a cool town for sure. It's awesome. And city. please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys.